so many elements go into cinematography. And cinematography itself is just one of the elements that ends up being finished product in a film. Our guest today, John Brawley, has been a cinematographer for a long time. But before that, he did just about everything in a camera department and a crew. He worked at a rental house. He had a long time apprenticeship with a working DP in Australia. And he did some post-production. And he also, along the way, managed to learn about emerging tech that would change post-production and cameras and cinematography forever. He was always cutting his teeth on the newest stuff. So he takes us through his career in our interview today and talks to us about how he kept making the jump forward, but also how he kept his eye on changes. There were a few times he hit rough patches and had to make tough calls, but he managed to keep going towards his goal, which was to become a cinematographer. Recently, he shot The Morning Show, which is on Apple TV. And he also has a friend who he's known since the early days by the name of Grant Petty, who comes up a few times and happened to found something called Black Magic Design, which is sort of connected to our theme week over on nofilmschool.com and part of what this podcast is all about. So as we go through John's career, we start talking black magic and the origins and how he saw things up close as they came to be for black magic design. You have have a long career. You've done a lot of television recently, the morning show, the great, but a bunch of things in Australia. And and before you were a DP, you were a gaffer. But I'm curious, and I want our—I'm sure a lot of our audiences as well. Where did you? Where did the very beginning of your career start? What was the first job, and what kind of got you in the door? Uh, yeah, I think I was always interested in image making. You know, even going back to uh, when I was a young man, you know, I got the family camera, and I was always interested in taking photos and and making images. And then that kind of got fostered when I was in high school. I had a very supportive teacher. And we, we had a great facility at the high school I was going to. We had a dark room and some camera equipment. And he kind of taught me out of hours. There wasn't even a formal photography course in the in the college in the you know high school I was going to, but and I ended up through him learning the basics of dark room practice. And I just really got into making images. And then uh, when I went to uh, university or college, I started off in a media degree and I never actually finished that degree, but I in the first year, they they also taught cinematography, and uh, once I I shot that first bit of film and screened it with uh, uh, you know thirty of my classmates and uh, experienced the thrill of seeing my images on a big screen and feeling the reaction of the audience to what I'd photographed, uh, I was kind of addicted uh, yeah. to, uh, to movies. Was uh, was that first stuff you shot? It was celluloid. Correct. It was yeah. So sixteen mil was a tri X. It's like uh, yeah. tri X reversal. Exactly reversal. What the film you shot was the film that went through the projector. And in fact, the ex- it was like an exercise, you know. And I ran around on some children's lo- in the local playground. On you know, I went down the slide and was on the kind of merry-go-round shot as a kind of point of view of a child bouncing up and down on a on the various play equipment. And you know, 
like it was a kind of roller coaster type experience when it screened in the uh, with the audience, you know, and it was a hundred feet of film. It's about three minutes is sort of uh, footage, I think. And then, yeah, I mean, it was a great kind of uh, hook for me. I, I became very enamored of of making those images and uh, moving an audience and affecting the audience in that way. I realized the kind of power you have. Mm. when you create those images and that you can kind of take an audience on a journey. And I, I, I just got addicted to that. And when you left university, what, what were you looking to do? Did you say, I'm going to try to get a job in a camera department? How did you make the yeah, first I mean, step? I, I had a part-time job. I was working in a camera store using my photography knowledge to sell cameras to people, not, not video cameras, just photographic cameras. Still, yeah, still photographic. Exactly. So, uh, I was doing that. And then, uh, one day, a cinematographer came in to buy, to buy a camera, and I kind of asked him if he, if I could get a job that I was interested in film and TV work. And uh, he let me come along, and and I basically became worked in the electrics department. I became a kind of electrician slash best boy. So I was starting to get work while I was at university, you know, doing this media degree. And then eventually, of course, um, they came into conflict with each other, and I just thought, well, I could go to college and learn how to do something or I could just go and do it. And then I figured I'd just go and start doing it and get paid to do it. And that that's would, pretty cool. Teach me enough. So I, uh, I chose to leave about 18 months into my degree and just went off and, uh, and started working in electrics and, uh, and kind of went, went from there, started working, working on various uh, shows and, and doing that kind of thing. And that, that's kind of what, where that was my first job was actually a, a show that nobody's seen called funky squad. It was a, um, uh, a well-known comedy group, but it was one of the shows that didn't didn't go so well. But it was so, it was such a great experience for me. It was my first ever paid job. Oh, cool! So I I want to go back because it's such a you know it's a unique story. A deep. How did you know the guy who came in to buy the still camera was a cinematographer and a I working just, cinematographer? I think I think we were just talking about yeah, he's buying a camera for previews or you know we were ah okay in, for tests kind of like or something. Dick, right as a sales person to get to know the get to know the people I would always talk to them about their life and so yeah he started talking about it I guess that's that, I'm trying I'm trying to remember it's, it was a while ago but I'm pretty yeah. sure how it went so no I, it's I, just I cool it's- that he was doing it and I just uh, got the got the gumption to um, ask that's pretty cool because if you and you just said like hey I'd love to work on a set yeah, I told him I was working, what I was, what, you know, that I'd been studying and I'd just started shooting some film and I'd love to get some time on set. I mean, at that point, I didn't really know that that's what I wanted to do. I was just very, I knew I was very interested in it, but I'd never been on a real working yeah. set. So uh, I just wanted to get on set and, and see what it was like. So, yeah. Of course, uh, addicted to that as well. I love, I love the lifestyle. It's very, you know, it's, it's, a great way to it is a lifestyle really you know it's a great <laughs> way to work with lots of different people and now i travel travel the world doing it after that you you kind of had you know I, from what i can tell after that you had some ass- additional camera operator assistant camera second unit so you had a bunch of operator credits and various credits in camera oh, i had a very unusual training actually so uh, for a while i was doing it was crewing I was working on a lot of uh, student films uh, whether my, from my old college that I'd left. I was still crewing on, on those films. And then there was the kind of formal actual film school that the kind of the more recognized film school. And I started shooting as a DP some of those films for, for some of those students. And I was renting equipment from one of the local rental houses. You know, in those days, there were three 
you know, rental houses. Panavision was one of them. And then there were two local ones that were locally owned. So I was renting some gear. Um, and I saw that the rental manager had a bunch of CVs on his desk. And I said, oh, you know, is there, is there a job going? And he he told me, he said, oh, you don't want this job. It's, you know, it's in rentals prep and you wouldn't like it. It's, you know, really boring. So I <laughs> put my CV in anyway and, uh, and applied for the job and got an interview and convinced them that I did really want to do the job. And so I started then working at the rental company in prep and I did that for a couple of years. And actually the guy that owned that rental company is a guy called John Bowring. ACS, who's a very well-known and much-loved and uh, admired cinematographer um, who's uh, no longer with us, but he he ended up becoming my mentor. He really um, oh, wow. taught me all my kind of bedside manner and uh, and he always had such a, you know, he, he ran a rental company, but he, he had such an inquisitive mind. And of course, we were always dealing with customers that were having faults or problems. So we became, or I ended up becoming good at troubleshooting some of those things because you'd start to know what was going wrong. And, you know, this is part of the rentals game. I learned some basic skills, how to collimate a camera, how to collimate a lens. You know, we had lens projectors and I, I picked up some of those skills as well, which was fantastic from a technical background. And John, my mentor, John Bowering, we sort of had the same initials as well. <laughs> we, uh, we ended up sort of, uh, yeah, he became a great kind of uh, mentor to me and I was there for about five years. And so after a couple of years in rentals, I ended up being in, um, becoming his kind of assistant full-time, which meant, you know, a very un- unorthodox way of shooting. And he, he's kind of a contemporary of people like, uh, I guess, Dean Semler, Andrew Lesney, those kind of era of, of those okay. photographers yeah. from Australia who came up actually starting off in news back when news was shot on film. And that's kind of where a lot of them got the, of that mm. era got their training. And so he had a kind of very documentary, naturalistic approach, a very simple approach, which I guess is what he kind of imparted to me as well as a, as a DP. So I started, I was recording sound and doing a bit of loading and, and helping him with a bit of lighting. And we were sort of a two-man crew. You know, we did a lot of documentary work for travel type documentaries there's a very famous series, probably not so much in the US, but there was a travel log series that were called Clive James Postcards. He was a kind of a, a, hmm. a witty personality and he made these kind of very f- amusing hour-long documentaries that would sort of be based in a certain location. So he'd travel to a certain destination and John, my mentor, would direct and shoot those. And so I got to start helping out on a few of those, doing a bit of um, loading, recording sound, doing a bit of lighting. Sometimes if I was really lucky, I got to shoot some second camera stuff. And John was great to me. You know, he would he would set me exercises. And because we had a, a cheap lab code and we'd have a lot of short ends, I'd get to um, borrow a camera on the weekend and he'd, you know, give me a job, so to speak, in, in air quotes. He'd, you know, tell me I had to go and shoot a time lapse of uh, sunset um, over the water. So I'd have to go and find a spot, put a short end. Of so it, it served as, as a, an all-encompassing film school, essentially. Yeah, like an apprenticeship. Like, it was my apprenticeship. Yeah. Exactly. That's you know amazing. I mean? and, it's a shame you know, we don't have more of that. I mean, certainly here, but in general. Yeah, I miss it. I mean, you know, in those days, the, the the there was the ABC, which is a kind of Australian version of the BBC, sort of had this traineeship. That was the only other one you could do that was of a similar nature. But that died just at the point I was starting to do my apprenticeship with John. So, yeah, that kind of idea of spending a lot of time with the one DP learning 
everything there was to learn. And, you know, he was in such a great position because we were at this rental company that had, you know, offices in all the, all the main sort of sites in Australia. I, I got to see a lot of different types of production as well. And um, what was the split between the rental house presence and being off shooting all the time? Was it constantly kind of a back and forth on the schedule? Yeah. It was a it was a total lifestyle. I mean, I, I I had no friends in those days because you know you'd uh, you I lived in Melbourne in theory, um, but you know you'd go to work <laughs> in the morning and they'd say, hey, uh, look, we're just going to fly to Sydney. It's a one hour flight. You know, we're just going to fly to Sydney just to do this quick job. You'll be back tonight, and then you wouldn't come back for two weeks because there'd be another job, and you'd you know you'd have to uh, go out and buy some clothes, and uh, it was oh, wow. just a very kind of hectic lifestyle. But you liked that or you, you were comfortable with that, yeah. At the time, I was very happy. I, I was just learning and getting such a great kind of rounded experience. Eventually, I got a bit sick of it um, and I wanted to do my <laughs> own thing. So there was a point where I realized uh, I was getting a bit angry about <laughs> um, never being able to book more than a couple of days in advance, you know, what was happening in my life. So, uh, and I, you know, I really wanted to go off and uh, do my own thing. So uh, that was the kind of point that I left. So I was there for about five years. How did you make the jump? From This is something that interests me, but I think is useful. Even though times change, I think some of the mentality or the psychology, like how did you, it sounds like you were ready for the change, but how did you say, okay, now like it's a risk, you know, how, how do you move on to the next thing and, yeah. and move forward or move up? It was a taking a leap, I guess. You know, I thought I'd be able to get some paid work. I'd already, I'd been to shooting short films and stuff while I was at, at the rental house and I felt like I'd probably get enough work doing kind of commercials and bits and pieces. And I, I was, just, it was more just that I was ready to not be in that environment anymore. I really wanted to be, be in charge of my own uh, work and do my own thing. So I, I ended up just kind of taking a leap of faith at that point. I started a company. And in fact, uh, at the time, I, I, while I was at Lemac, at Lemac, so the company I worked for was a company called Lemac. And they were a, um, a, as well as being a rental house, they were the Arton agents. And Arton made all this fancy telecine equipment. And I was kind of looking after that. And I got to know a guy who worked at a post house called Complete Post. I got to know their telecine engineer. His name was Grant Petty. And we kind of became friends there. And uh, he had just made this new capture card that would capture single frames. In those days, telecine, when you were grading, you know, it's easy to compare A and B and C. But in those days, frame stores were, were like a radical new thing. And mm. you know, it, you could, if you're lucky, you could get three photos stored in your, um, in your desk that you could refer to when you were, when you were color grading. So you know, he, he figured out he could make a better version of that. And so he created this capture card that would, that would be a frame store. And you, know, you could store 40 photos, and it was such a big <laughs> difference. And then I think he realized that, well, actually, I could do this like 24 times a second and I'd have a video capture card. And it sort of lined up about the time that Apple introduced this piece of software called Final Cut. And <laughs> I remember <laughs> uh, he, he just happened to be starting to make this kind of video capture card. That was about the time I left. And I started actually a kind of a post company. And that was going to be my backup income, you know, because in those hmm. days it was like, great, we could, you know, spend. 20 grand and those days like an avid an uncompressed avid was about 200 and, you know for 20 grand you could get a um, one of grant's capture cards you could get final cut pro you know you could kind of do a job uh, doing posts so we started doing some post on documentary 
clients um, doing some kind of online finishing in those days. And we did, I, I had a business partner who was really good at graphics. So he was doing all the titles and we did some VFX work as well. And it was like really in that. How early on did you learn all the nonlinear editing? Like when did you, you, you know, we've talked about how you were on set and you were shooting stuff, but this is, you know, post-production. Like, so we're at the same time that you were doing those things, were you learning about and keeping up with the developments of like Avid's and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it fell into my wheelhouse because of what I was doing when I was at Lemac. So, you know, they had a Media 100, which was the kind of, de rigueur edit suite if you mm-hmm. were on a bit of a budget and you couldn't afford an Avid. I think um, I'm trying to remember Pinnacle was the other company that were making nonlinear editing in those days. And I was doing a little, because uh, we would make little marketing videos, I was doing a little bit of post. And often what would happen, we'd have clients that would be shooting on film. We had one documentary client who had traveled for a couple of weeks in the remote parts of Australia and they had this hair in their camera, a hair in the gate essentially, over all of their footage and it was a disaster. And at that time, there was another piece of software we looked at and I ended up being the one having to paint it out frame by frame. Commotion <laughs> uh, um, uh, was sort of like Photoshop for video in those days. And it was nice. very good at, good at doing cloning and those kind of things. So I was starting to kind of learn some of those skills there, do a little bit of editing. I see. And in fact, so John you were developing, you cut your teeth as that industry was born, essentially. Exactly. And, and you know, wow. John, John himself, you know, being an old uh, news cameraman, was sort of saying to me, you know, you, you're not really a cinematographer until you've had to cut your own material. And it's very yeah. true. And I think if you want to be a great cinematographer, it's when you edit your own shots and find what you forgot to shoot or didn't shoot well enough. Is, what, is, is a great way to learn how to be a better cinematographer once once you have to deal with your own mistakes. <laughs> that's so, that's a great line. I want to take that. <laughs> I want to remember that one. You've never really become a cinematographer until you've cut your own material. Yeah. That's a good I mean, one. Because, you know, then you realize quickly, you know, what, you know, how to, how to start shots, how to end shots, all those kind of things that the editors think about all the time, transitions between shots. And, uh, and it also gave me great perspective on, especially for drama, you know, the, the uh, learning all of those kind of visual language rules about the, the screen direction and the, the, the line and all of those kind of ideas, they all come out of editing. And I think, you know, any sure. cinematographer should, should be forced to uh, do some kind of uh, editing practice just, just if only to inform them how to be better, better DP. So with a little bit of uh, post knowledge and these new cheap tools that people like Brand <laughs> are making and, and Apple obviously revolutionizing things, as well, that meant we could sort of set up this little post company, but it was only ever meant to be kind of a backup for me. I, you know, I wanted to be a DP. I was like, right. well, well, you know, I can, we can shoot music videos and we can do the post as well. And then, you know, if we have any other clients, we could, we could do that as well and make a bit of extra money. And it actually worked pretty well for quite a few years. And that's, that's, what, that's what I did. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. 
Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So I want to know more, you know, you started becoming more of a cinematographer on your own. You also had the post house. How long until you were, you know, shooting television shows as a cinematographer in Australia? That still took a long time. I mean, that was probably around uh, when did I leave? It was probably around the 2000 that I that I went out as a freelancer for the first time by myself. And it wasn't until you know, I mean, it was eight or nine years later by the time I was doing drama. So it took me a long time, and I got very frustrated because I was doing a lot of. I mean, I did. I think I had over a hundred short films. Um, and I had all these music videos, but you know the feature film market in those days, and even today in Australia, it's quite small. You know, there's maybe thirty yeah. films that get made a year. And it's very competitive. But what was starting to happen was, of course, you know, TV was starting to come into its own a bit more. People like, uh, or uh, you know, companies like HBO were sort of starting to really say, "Hey, you know, there's this whole other way we can do things." Uh, Cinematic television, exactly. yeah, you know, and also using people that are from filmmaking, yes. you know, cinema making, filmmaking people to do TV as well. And around that time too, like that was around 2000, I guess, eight, nine, ten. 10, I was starting to be interested and, you know, you're starting to see those large format cameras or larger sensor cameras, you know. And before that, a lot of TV in Australia was shot 16 mil because it was cheaper, Super 16. If it was a cheap show, you know, you'd shoot it on a, on a digital beta cam or you might have an F900 if it was a fancy show. Then we started getting... 5Ds and we started getting the red, uh, the original, we started getting Alexas. And that was, you know, around the kind of 2009, 10 period. So about 2007, after having been freelance for sort of six or seven years, doing quite a lot of jobs, I was doing commercials, but I just couldn't crack doing a feature, couldn't get into TV. It was a very kind of closed market to me. So I got frustrated and I'd had a few people that had worked under me who had gone uh, to to do their masters at the Australian Film Television Radio School or AFTERS, and they'd done really well after after going through that. And I thought, well, I always was a little bit anti film school, thinking, mm-hmm. you know, what can I do? But I, I'd seen so many people be successful after doing it, so I thought I'll, I'll I'll apply and give it a try. And so I did, and it was a two year masters course. I got in, even though I didn't have uh, my undergraduate course, but huh. I had. I had enough experience and, you know, that that was a great process for me, you know, going back into that kind of academic environment and it was a very concentrated, it's not like normal university. I mean, it's very practical the way it was run in those days. There was only four cinematographers, four directors, four editors, Hmm. uh, and you kind of constantly rotated with each other and it was, you know, it was very intense, you know, it was like- And by then, was the large format digital camera what you were shooting on? Were you starting to really- No, not not yet. That was still, and you know, the great thing about afters in those days is we did shoot a lot of film. We shot a lot of 35 mil. Uh, It was the first time I'd worked with production designers and, you know, it was really kind of the finishing school for cinematographers is how they kind of- position themselves yeah. and that's really what they were and in fact you know it, it was a great experience so just as i was graduating from that i got to shoot my first feature film which was lake mungo a film that i was sort of involved with as a producer and then uh yeah at that point one of the short filmmakers that i'd worked with she got a comedy series up and so i went and did uh, i went and did that i shot that on a red and i think that was actually one of the first tv it was a red one was quite new and it was i think it was one of the first tv shows to shoot red in Australia that was on network. I think there'd been a cable show that had shot red a little bit before me, but certainly in terms of broadcast. 
And that was a big deal in those days because it was a super risky <laughs> choice. Yeah, I, I no, I, I remember. Uh, here I am, a new cinematographer doing my first TV show, and I'm like, yeah, let's shoot it on a an untried <laughs> yeah i mean and they, they were a little noisy at the time right yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, okay. that's what well, i remember i mean the very early ones used to overheat really quickly and crash and what uh, were you excited just excited was it trepidation and how did you feel about the format like the look of it were you like i, I mean, can I do really, this like, i really like the the 35 mil sized sensor that was the biggest thing for me and it instantly made a huge huge difference and you know i knew that TV just wouldn't be the same. And, you know, you could shoot like you shoot movies. I mean, it was only a small comedy series, but it was still important um, for me. And out of that series, the production designer recommended me for another show that she was doing that was with a very well-known and very established Australian producer by the name of John Edwards. He kind of became a mentor to me a little bit as well. So John and also his producing partner, Imogen Banks, um, had this show this new show that they were doing called Offspring and they'd sort of hmm. interviewed me. And again, I'd very arrogantly thought, uh, told them all, they'd shot a pilot, but the pilot DP couldn't do the show and they were looking for a DP for the series. And uh, I arrogantly told them all the things that were, I thought were wrong visually with their, with their <laughs> pilot. but apparently they thought that was a good sign and, uh, and took me on. And, you know, that was the, a show that I'm still very proud to be part of today called Offspring. It's almost become a cult show now. It's on Netflix in here in the US. And I still get people now like discovering the show and, and you know, fanning, being kind of fanboys and fangirls for that show. So it's That's uh, cool. It's, it's travel really well. And I think there was seven seasons. I did sort of six and a half of them. So yeah, that was my first kind of dr- proper drama job. I sort of, the, the previous show to Offspring was a comedy. It was only a half hour. This was like, this is proper, you know, real, real true drama yeah what uh what did you shoot that one on um that one was red as well so i took my experience from the the previous show i'm just trying to remember the oh my golly the name of it you have to cut around this now um hunters no it was beautiful no no lowdown so lowdown was the first proper tv show i did it was a comedy series and then uh, Offspring was after that, and the, the first, the first two or three seasons were, I think, the first three seasons were red in those days. And then uh, by the time we got to sort of season two and three, the Alexa was out and and in force, and we kind of ended up switching switching over to that. What, uh, especially because like Australia based, when have you shot on Black Magic? Which Black Magic cameras have you shot on? All of them. I mean, uh, because <laughs> uh, I dropped that little pearl before, so. You know, I'd met Grant when he was a yeah. engineer. He was uh, he kind of had a cameo earlier in the story. <laughs> exactly. So I'd known him for a long time. And then because I'd also embraced his cards early on, I'd helped him out with a couple of trade shows in Australia where, you know, he needed people to demo cards and do things. So, you know, he'd sort of and I'd had a relationship with him even back then. He'd he'd give me prototype cards or early versions of cards to try out and get get feedback on so we sort of had a little bit of a relationship like that and then what was your sense of what he was up to at the time he was just kind of trying to carve out a new future in the tech in the space what was Uh, your impression it was amazing because you know he was doing things that nobody else was doing in australia at the time you know he was manufacturing his own hardware in-house so he wasn't sending off to asia to get ten thousand card yeah. made and components put on them. He was buying the machine that places the components. He was buying the machines that make the PCBs 
and doing it all himself because he wanted to control it. So I, I went around to his factory in the early days and he'd proudly show me the machine that could put 17,000 resistors on a board per hour <laughs> and showed me all this kind of assembly and manufacturing. And he was making it all himself in-house. And you know he really saw it as being his kind of competitive advantage because he could move faster to market. And if he found you know problems or if, if he realized there were ways to improve things more so, he could make that change, and the next day the new boards were coming off the line as as they made them. So, you know, he he was always kind of doing things in a different way, and of course he he revolutionised. I mean, he really the low cost of his products it was the same disruptive model. You know, yeah, he was competing against hundred thousand dollar plus systems with a five. I think the first time when the card first came out was five thousand, he dropped it to a thousand, and then it was like three hundred dollar. You know, they were just. Yeah mainly low cost and meant everyone could get one. So he just made it very accessible. And he's really just taken that model. Started democratizing the whole process. Yeah, Exactly. And he's taken that model on. The, so the funny thing is, is that um, my mentor, John Bowering, was coming back from a trade show, unfortunately, he passed away while he was traveling back. And it was such a devastating uh, loss. I you know, had a very close relationship and Sue, his wife, yeah. asked me to kind of go to his service and speak as well. So there was just a handful of us there, but you know there were hundreds of people who showed up. They actually had it at one of the major studios in Melbourne at Docklands Studios, and Grant was there as well. And afterwards, we were standing around uh, sort of chatting, and I, Grant at the time, so the Blackmagic at the time had just bought DaVinci. So I was sort of giving Grant a hard time saying, well, look, you know, you've bought, you've, you've got the post equipment, like why haven't you kind of, you've got to build a camera next? And we sort of laughed and <laughs> we tried to imagine because John Bowering, my former mentor, you know, he was the Arton agent. We had Jean-Pierre Bouviala from Arton out all the time and he had no problem telling him what was wrong with his cameras. So we sort of channeled John and imagined what he would tell us to do in making a camera. Like how would he, how would he make a camera? <laughs> As a joke, right? We were sort of saying, oh, yeah. But then, like six months later, I emailed Grant and I said, Hey, you know, I've got this film I'm shooting. At the time, to shoot Ari Raw was very expensive. You had to get this external codex recorder that was more expensive than the camera itself. And I, I was like, You know, he had some little video. I think he had the Hyperdex, the little SSD based video recorders. I said, Grant, why don't you make an Ari Raw recorder? You know, it would be really great. You could make them really cheap and, you know, <laughs> give people area. And he said, John, I want you to come in. You know, can you come in on this day? Uh, and I was like, yeah, no problem. Um, thinking he was going to show me the, his version of an Ari Raw recorder. And he took me in, made me, <laughs> made me sign an NDA. Wow. I was in this kind of boardroom. And then, because uh, we'd had an email exchange, and he puts up a slideshow. And my email is like the first slideshow he, he has about like, talking about a camera and he said yeah. well we took this to heart and then he kind of pulls out from under the table this mock-up of the wow. first camera that they made the the, the two and a half k uh, cinema camera and he said well you know this is what we're going to do that's so it cool kind of blew me away i mean because it, it happened <laughs> very fast that they, he went from where to go and then a few months later they well first of all they had some like early sent i shot some tests with them with their early sensors they were sort of profiling sensors I literally had a circuit board with a sensor on it and a, and a lens mount sort of crudely attached to it 
the, there was no viewfinder. You sort of looked at it in black and white on a laptop, and there was about a five second delay. So it was wow. very hard to get it in focus. And it's like it was, the Wright brothers or something. <laughs> it was very primitive. Uh, so we shot some tests. We were trying out some sensors. Different. They were trying out different sensors and different modes. But they very quickly got a camera that was very functional. I had the. I had a prototype. In fact, I shot a lot of prototype stuff very early on, and Grant was very secrecy. You know, is a big thing for him, and he. I had this kind of weird disguise that the camera was like uh, shrouded in, so it was sort of like this kind of black velvet that was sort of stitched together that sort of <laughs> went over the front of the camera, so no one would. So the camera it. had a dis- the camera was in a disguise, so well, no one yeah, could see. Yeah. So, he, he was worried that I'd be going out because it looks really cool, right? If you see that that camera for the first time, it's like, what is that thing? This yeah, chunk like of aluminium with a giant screen on the back. Yeah, um, it was very unique at the time, so he was worried that people would really recognize it and understand what it was. So I'd go out in the street and shoot, and it looked like I was shooting with a shoebox with a kind of lens sticking out the front. <laughs> like and one of those old-timey cameras. about it. <laughs> yeah, when the photographer has to go under the blanket, like those kinds of things. <laughs> it's that, exactly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what was it like? You guys were, I had no idea. So you guys were pulling up this footage, this test footage you you were shooting and looking at it. Were you, did your, uh, your ability to be frank and honest, like when you took that, went in yeah, for that I television mean, yeah, job, yeah. did that help? Most, <laughs> like of sort time, of- uh, most of the time, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this. They, they often, it, by the time that I get to know about new product, it's usually pretty late in the design phase in terms of the industrial design. So a lot sure. of my feedback around the shape of things and the way accessories work, it's usually a bit too late. And they, hopefully it makes it into the next iteration. But certainly on an image processing point of view, I mean, it was great. And I love being involved in that. You know, I, From a technical point of view, I've learned so much more about my from my own cinematography um, about how images are created, how post is is managed and worked, and the, as a, I mean, I'm I'm a layperson, but I know a lot more about sensor design than I ever thought I'd know uh, as well. So you know that stuff I find endlessly interesting. You know, and they and they usually want someone to be critical, like they're they're looking to find fault by the time it gets in my my hands and find. Nowadays, out. I would think it's ex- extremely valuable for a cinematographer to understand that side of it because the cameras that you're going to use most of the time are capturing a digital image. Yeah, I don't think it hurts. I don't think it hurts. I mean, I'm always reticent to say you need to be an expert. in. I mean, you know, everyone's got their own process. But for me, Mm -hmm. it really helps to understand what makes the foundations of that image where it can go wrong. It certainly helps me with 
being hypercritical when I do tests. I can I know what to look for when I'm comparing cameras. I can kind of assess things in a way that's framed a bit differently, I guess. But not that it really matters. I think, you know, in, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing I love about cinematography is it's this kind of arcane knowledge of physics and optics and photochemistry if you're doing film and yeah. all of this kind of tech knowledge. But in the end, it's actually all in service of a creative outcome. Did you make people cry? Did you make people yeah. laugh? That's all that matters. No one actually yeah. cares what you went through ultimately, <laughs> ultimately to get to that image as long as it had an effect. So I, I love that. You know, I love knowing all of that. And also in the back of my head, I always know that it's sort of irrelevant in a way. I mean, it's all about getting to an end, end result that moves the audience in some way. And and that's that's the kind of, I think that's why I haven't gotten bored with being a cinematographer. You know, it, it's endlessly fascinating to me how we can use all of these different tools at our in our disposal, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always sort of said, I'm not really, I'm kind of camera agnostic. I mean, my, I frustrate mm. the hell out of my crew and my assistants, but I've, I've got 12 different cameras and they're all different brands and I'm happy to kind of intermix them all the time. I, you know, I've never been the, the a, a kind of slave to any one brand. I love like yeah. only because they do things that nobody else does. And of course I have, a very long standing yeah. friendship with the guy that started the company. And subsequently I've gotten I've got a lot of great friends there now because of all of the developmental work I've done with them. But you know, we're yeah. friends first and then uh, we have a kind of the, the, the kind of uh, business relationship, I guess, in terms of giving feedback on products. But I really like yeah. the way you uh, frame that that there it's kind of like this weird mixed medium, mixed you know, discipline alchemy. Yeah. That leads to something that ultimately all that matters is like, is the story going to be good to people? Do they care? Yeah. <laughs> all that, all that for just, you just yeah. Want, the worst thing that can happen for me is for the audience to not care about what they're right. like. You know, I want them to be engaged and they might hate it, but that's, that's great too. I mean, they might love it or hate it or they have a, they've got to have a reaction. You've got to prov- provoke a reaction. I, I, Yeah. I want to follow up on one on one more thing you said there, though, that you're surrounded by cameras, you're agnostic, which is really cool. What dictates, if you can, sometimes you don't get to make a decision, right, about what you're going to use. You're kind of put in a place where a decision is made based on circumstance. But for you, what does determine, like, what kind of camera or lens or how, how you package together, like, say, with the morning show? Like, what makes the, what factors come in play when you make those decisions? There's so, there's so many things. I mean, the script is really the big one. I mean, the, the story tells you, I think, tells you how it wants to be shot. You know, it, it, it's going to become apparent. So all of those, there's a thousand decisions you make. And honestly, the camera that you choose is one tiny part of, of many mm. decisions you're going to make as a cinematographer in the, in the telling of the story. The lenses you use, but equally, maybe even more importantly, is where are you going to put that camera how are you mm. going to use that camera? What lighting, you know, what image are you going to create with that camera? You know, they, they're all kind of yeah. um, incremental steps in this kind of building blocks of, of kind of creating the thing. I mean, sometimes too, you end up with choices that you just inherit. Like the morning show, I came in as the second DP and a lot of choices that I had there were inherited. And so for right. me, when I accept a job like that, that's part of the challenge. It's like, okay, can I step into someone else's choices and how do I make that? How do I adapt myself to to their uh, choices and their process and their visual approach as well? So you know that was part of the challenge for me for that show was to kind of make it my own, but but you know using 
the sandbox that they've already built for me with you know the choices that they made. You know that was all shot with right. um, the, the DXL two Panavision Primo seventy lenses. You know a, a, a beautiful, fantastic combination. So you know I hadn't I'd tested that combination before, but I'd never shot a series with it. So coming into into someone else's house and uh, and, yeah. and, and you know using their kitchen to make a meal is is the analogy I like to make. I mean, you yeah. you you know you you adapt yourself, and I, that's part of the creative process as well. Is is getting myself into those situations. I, you know, in a way, I always think it's good to be a little bit scared. You always want to be worried. You know, if you you never want to be complacent, especially with television too, because you have twelve episodes sometimes, or eight or ten episodes, and you've got a new director every two or you know one or two episodes. They come in all enthusiastic. You don't want to be. Right. You know, yeah. Well, we've sort of shot that corner fifteen times already, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you have to be open, fresh, and yeah. open, exactly, and excited for them. I mean, that's my job is to kind of is to be open and, and treat it like I'm doing it for the first time. So, you know, I think you have to be aware of those kind of challenges, and I think they're they're more pressing in television because you can get into a grind. Uh, a little bit more of a routine as well, and yeah, and you were also just talking about. I know, I know, you've been scouting recently, and I'm yes. sure the location has a huge weight on what the location you end is, up a, deciding, is a character. Right? I mean, it, you know, I I think of it as ca- it, it's like I'm casting another person. You know, ca- they say casting is really important, and of course it is with which actors you're choosing to bring into a into a film or a story, but so is casting your crew, and so is casting the locations. I mean, it's the mm. same thing, you know. I, I always think of casting as uh, a crew as as casting as well because you're trying to find people that can work together. You know, they might individually be outstanding and great, but are they going to be able to come together for what this particular show requires? You know, and and that's going back to your story about where do those choices kind of come from? I mean, it comes from mm. script. It comes from spending time with the director and with the you know, in the case of television, with the uh, showrunners. Uh, trying to find what the story wants, what the story needs, uh, and trying to respond to that and be reactive to that, and, and also anticipate, you know, what what is going to work and what the show wants, and kind of coming up with the, you know, the visual uh, vernacular of what of what a show will be, and what are the kind of visual rules of, of that particular environment, and and sometimes you can go in thinking it's going to be A, and it sort of turns into a B, and then uh, you have to modify it and, and change things, uh, and that that's natural as well. You know, it's a kind of yeah, uh, and it, and like you said, purpose. you came into Morning Show; it had already been something. You have to help evolve it somewhere yeah. as you go, knowing that it already has a history. So totally, a and you don't want to do the same thing. I mean, show, yeah. it should evolve season to season. As you don't want it to be the, doing the same thing. You know, I think of it too, like televisions, like. You know, you've, everyone's got a favorite restaurant, you know, and you always go back to that restaurant because you you probably almost always order the same thing. You want it, hmm. you want that same kind of expect. You have that expectation of a certain kind of result and a certain outcome. And I think te- good te- television is a little bit like that. You you know, yeah. it's it's not repetitive because there are slight differences, and you do like the experience each time. Sometimes you'll try another thing on the menu, but you probably always come <laughs> come back to your favorite. Right. Now, suddenly there's a different chef on, and they use like they're you can tell when it's when it goes off the rails and you notice and it's like you're either going to go with that or not and a lot of the time you know it loses something and then maybe you're not going to go back there again and order that meal again you're going to go somewhere else so sometimes it's good not to uh shake things up too much it's something i'm always very conscious of uh, with episodic work that you don't because fans have a certain um yeah in the show and they have a certain expectation and you have to be 
true to that. You want to evolve it, but you don't want to, you don't want to mess with it. Yeah, I, that's a good point, and I haven't heard anybody make that comment. I haven't had I haven't heard anybody make that observation before that. As much as you want to evolve it or do something, or like you said, stay fresh and not feel stale for the director who's not in on two episodes. People watch the show for a reason. They came back for a reason. And if your ego forces you to say, like, I'm going to reinvent the wheel today, well, that's going to hurt the big picture, right? Absolutely. That's, that's well said. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to John for coming on the podcast. Please head over to nofilmschool.com. Check out all the content we have for our Black Magic theme week camera through post. We are covering all kinds of things related to production, pre-production, and post-production, particularly through the lens of Black Magic design. So check it out. We also have a number of other podcasts out this week that you can look at. Please also be sure to tune into our weekly podcast, which drops every Thursday morning. Our interviews always drop on Tuesday mornings. And like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, email us questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. And as always, thank you for listening. <music>